Hey ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 11 of our podcast. Thank you for listening. We welcome all your thoughts. You're such smart and intuitive listeners. Yeah, and subscribe so you can hear the podcast as soon as we post it. As you know, Jesse will read from Time's Riddle, the story project we're working on. And we've had such a good time researching it and bringing it to you. And if you're listening to this, you're like us, and you just love thinking about how history connects to now. So after the reading, Gage and I are going to discuss some of the historical facts and research that went into today's episode and that really inspired us. At this point in our story, Philomena and Constance are searching out everyone who could have any information about the mysterious unsigned letter. The letter revealed that a stoner relic might have survived Henry VIII's raids. Since moving to Cecilia's, Constance has become very bold about doing as she pleases. Together, Philomena and Constance are going to see one of Philomena's former servants, who now owns a wig shop. So read on, Jessie. Chapter 11, Silver Street, in which the wig maker's wife sets Constance straight. Stealing out of Bedford House in the early morning to meet Philomena had yielded some discomforting moments. To escape, Constance had walked softly on the balls of her feet, surrounded by the snores and mumbles of the Swedish ladies. Something nipped her. After an eek of surprise, she hopped on one foot. Not a snore broke rhythm. Wind mumbled from her pallet on the floor, and Constance was out of the door. But then tiptoeing in the walkway, she met Princess Cecilia, standing, as if waiting, swathed in her long black travelling cloak. "'Going out, dear heart, a lover?' Cecilia spoke with a smile. Constance blushed and curtsied. "'Oh, how delightful! Together we must keep this from the Queen. She is too cold of heart to sympathise with the glow of amour.' Cecilia threw kisses and spun away. Constance was surprised at this disdain for Her Majesty, but then the Princess Cecilia was nothing if not capricious. Constance bundled out into the morning, speculating on Cecilia and her mysterious outings. The princess must have a lover or two, or more. Who might they be? Captain Hawkins? The Spaniard with the curls? Or Professor Delanoy? The royal lady had abundant energy. As Constance walked, the icy patches on the cobblestones began to thaw, and the city started to wake. Shopkeepers opened their doors, masters bellowed orders to sleepy apprentices, Chamber pots were emptied, and the stench mixed with the smells of many breakfasts being prepared. The early morning cold made Constance's eyes sting, and her feet began to ache. But Philomena appeared at the top of Silver Street, the tower at her side, waving and greeting. Yet Constance noted Philomena's mouth had an uncommon downturn, and she seemed to sway in her walk. Philomena, have you worries? asked Constance. The same as every day? Oh, indeed, I see that is not so. Today something else weighs on you. Philomena pulled her cloak at the neck. Constance was aware of the eyes on them. Men with carts laden struggled past, happy to see a sight they had not seen before. Two ladies in close talk with a mythically large boy standing behind. The tower had bowed to Constance before assuming his silent post behind his mistress. I would I could visit my mother in the country, but I cannot leave the inn. I cannot go to leave it run itself. My return would find ruin, I fear. Had Philomena received news, Constance wondered? She said, I will say a prayer for your mother tonight, and for you too. Thank you. And now I must forget my own worries. Avant! 
Preparing for another scene such as the one she had had with Alice, Philomena was armed with a flask of wine and two fresh handkerchiefs. Yet, on seeing the wigmaker's wife, Philomena's fears abated. Joan Whitnell carried a comfortable weight, a somewhat toothless grin, and a younger person's quickness. The shop she oversaw was tidy, with bundles of hair and tools neatly arranged. The finished hairpieces looked of a quality that spoke well of the Whitnell business, and Philomena expected all would survive the interview without any histrionic displays. In the back room, after beckoning the girls to sit at the table and passing them cups of watered wine, Joan praised Philomena's mother and looked grave when told of her illness. Philomena recounted Alice's tale and, hiding the purpose of the visit, expressed a simple desire to return the box to its rightful owner. Poor Alice, Joan sighed. We were great friends once, but then, after the Earl of Surrey's execution, Alice became so, well, almost as one who has the crank. She told you as she remembered it, I do not fault her, but I tell you the box did not belong to the Earl of Surrey. It belonged to the young Sir Thomas Wyatt. Constance was incredulous. You must be mistaken. It had to have belonged to the Earl of Surrey. He was a poet and a courtier. Philomena echoed her. And the box is full of verses. They would be the verses of old Sir Thomas Wyatt. Joan spoke smugly, taking a sip of her wine. He wrote, Oh, my lute awake. I play that on the viol, Philomena said as Joan preened with the satisfaction of first-hand information. Heaven and hell, Constance thought, not the young Sir Thomas Wyatt, the heretic who tried to oust Queen Mary, the last true Catholic monarch of England. Constance was not accepting Joan's tale without a challenge. Why did the Earl of Surrey have the box if it was not his? Old Wyatt died suddenly away from home. His son was staying at the inn, and the father's papers, those he had with him when he died, came there. I hazard a guess that the young one gave the box of poems to the Earl of Surrey, who had interest in such wordy things. The Earl of Surrey and old Sir Thomas Wyatt were both men of poetry, and young Wyatt a man of high spirits. He had no time for wordy business. He was such a fine lad, good, full of jest. Constance was livid that a rebel traitor was being described with these words. She decided this woman was very ugly, clearly not of the old faith, and had no judgment, religious or otherwise. I do not think the young Wyatt was a fine man, she pronounced. Why do you say so? Joan shot back. Was he of your acquaintance, lady, that you can know such a thing? Constance is only teasing you, dear Joan. You are so kind to have us here, and to tell us all you know, Philomena placated. Now, Alice said that the Earl of Surrey gave that box to my mother. Is that true? The night they took the Earl of Surrey away, it was as if we were all on fire. And yet through this craze, the Earl of Surrey thought of the Wyatts. He cared so much for the father and son. He told your mother to keep the box until young Sir Thomas Wyatt came back from war. Constance went to interrupt, but Joan said pointedly to Philomena, I heard every word because I held the mistress's hand. Where was young Thomas that he was not there to help his friend? demanded Constance. He was away fighting, mistress, and I'm sure bravely in King Henry's interest. My husband was a soldier before he took up the wigmaker's trade. He fought alongside Sir Thomas the Younger in Flanders, and those were hard battles, I assure you. Whitnall, God rest his soul, took a French arrow to the leg 
He brought it home with him, and it was still in his thigh when he died of the sweat a year ago. Constance chewed over the story's improbabilities. The Earl of Surrey was beheaded by King Henry, but younger Wyatt was beheaded by Queen Mary, and even though the short reign of King Edward passed between, Wyatt would have had time to claim the box. She said, Joan, young Thomas died long after the Earl. If it was his, why did he never come back to get it? Your story makes no sense. Are you a barrister to try to catch me up, mistress? Have I not just spoken the words that Sir Thomas Wyatt the Younger fought abroad for many years? A box of verses would not have preyed on his mind as it seems to have had on yours. Swooping in, Philomena began to recite the only Wyatt poem she knew. My lute be still, for I have done, as to be heard when ear is none. What beautiful words! What a tragedy! The poet's son and his friend Surrey, to die so young? Joan reached out to Philomena. I could never have thought those two would come to such ends. On Tower Hill, their heads on a block. The Earl never looked to the death of the King, and Sir Thomas, he never thought to kill the Queen Mary. Joan's conviction gathered speed. Never, just to stop her marriage to that Spaniard, Philip, that Pope's lackey. But they beheaded young Wyatt, left his head on a spike. His limbs were drawn and quartered, and his innards boiled in hot oil, so his soul would have no body to convey it up to heaven. Would you condemn an innocent man so? Constance felt Philomena willing her to answer, but she knew her tepid, No, was too reluctant. Joan exploded. He deserved a proper burial. He was the betrayed, not the betrayer. And Queen Mary died barren and alone. Such was the legacy of that Spaniard. She would have done well to take Wyatt's warning against such a faithless papist. And Wyatt? He was honest, true, better to the troops than all others. He paid each soldier before they marched on. My husband never forgot that. Sir Thomas Wyatt was an honest one. Constance pushed down her hot temper, cooled it with deep breaths, and kept her silence. Philomena said, Indeed, I cry when I think of how they treated his body. Do not worry yourself, my dear. The gentleman had a proper burial in the end. At least part of him did. My Whitnall saw to that, Joan confided. He rescued the head, buried it properly in a churchyard. I think of my man, in the dead of night, slipping past the posted guards and concealing the head in a sugar bag. My Whitnall could have ended on the gallows. Did you help bury it? asked Philomena. I am a loyal wife. Whitnall came to the house with the severed head. You can imagine how it oozed, and I wrapped it in cloth. It was seven days gone, and the smell was unkind. You touched it? Constance was captured despite herself. She was thinking of Sir Thomas More's head, and she was sure Philomena was thinking the same. Joan nodded. Oh, now my Whitnall is gone. I will say it. I wonder if we were right to bury it. Joan, what else might you have done with it? Philomena asked, giving it to his poor family. I agree, that would have been the right thing to do. Constance spoke genuinely, thinking of her own kin and the risks they took to save Sir Thomas More's remains. Her mind flashed to Aunt Stoner, her hatred of the Queen finally leading her to a cell and the axe. Constance would like to have whatever body part remained, although fresh would be preferable. When you take the box to the Wyatt widow, Joan suggested, you can take the head with you. There was no plan to give back the box, and however right it might be to return what must now be a skull, Constance did not want to do it. Philomena said, It is a serious thing to dig up a man's head already put to rest. 
Constance urged. Young Wyatt may haunt us for it. The suggestion made Joan reconsider. That may be. And Whitnell would not have liked it moved after he risked so much. What admiration I have for your brave husband. Let us do his will. The head is best left and I honour him. Philomena wanted to get away before Joan set out to the churchyard with a spade. Very well, but will you take a little token to the Wyatts? It hung from the ear of Sir Thomas Wyatt when we rescued the Ed. Joan overturned a few empty pitchers before retrieving a tarnished gold key. The dead man's initials were carved in tiny letters. Constance shuddered, but put the key in her pocket. Walking back to the inn, Constance broke into, My lute be still, for I have done, as to be heard when ear is none. Mock outrage dropped Philomena's jaw. You dare imitate my song? Constance followed with overblown humility. I would not dare. If ever I have a meeting that takes a wrong turn, I see that poetry is the only course of action. Philomena, I humble myself to you. When she sang the praises of that traitor, I could not hold my temper. I have had much practice in the art of humouring, Philomena said, but little in the art of stealing heads, which seems a skill not uncommon. True, I thought it rare bravery, but it seems I am wrong. Every Tom, Dick and Harry steals a head. If I acquiesce to you, Philomena, and give you the right of Joan's memory, the older Wyatt is the author of the letter. But why would such a man, a poet, have prized the relic of a martyr? Oh, this older and younger, how tiresome it is, said Philomena. A great poet should have discovered a more original title for his son. But the older could have been a Catholic, an admirer of Sir Thomas More. They both served King Henry and were men of letters. Wyatt was protecting the relic of his friend. And the younger Wyatt? Well, he did not like Queen Mary's marriage to the Spanish Philip, but that does not mean Wyatt the younger was a Protestant. There are many English of both religions who mistrust foreigners. Tis true. What a muddle. I wonder if there might be mention of the relic in the poet Wyatt's verse. I wager Wyatt the elder wrote only of love. Let us find in what rooms at the inn his son sojourned. There may be something hidden there. Wyatt the Elder was now, in Constance's mind, a pious Catholic holding out against King Henry's looters. She was angry at Sir Thomas Wyatt the poet for keeping the relic for himself, but if he had saved it, she was willing to forgive him everything. Searching the son's room might yield something of interest. She followed Philomena and the tower down St. Lawrence Street towards the Arundel Inn. Aha, the mystery unfolds. It was not Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, who wrote the letter, but the famous poet, Sir Thomas Wyatt the Elder. Thomas Wyatt the Elder was a courtier at the court of Henry VIII, but we're going to give him lots of airtime coming up. So right now we're going to focus on his son, another Thomas Wyatt. Yes, another same name situation. <laughs> Sir Thomas Wyatt the Younger, often called the Rebel because of the failed uprising he led. In Chapter 7 of Time's Riddle, we saw Sir Thomas Wyatt the Younger give Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, a box of papers. Through Joan's story, Constance and Philomena discover that those are the papers of Sir Thomas Wyatt the Elder, or the Poet. We don't know for sure that the papers of Thomas Wyatt the Poet would have been sent to his son at the Arundel Inn. But it actually would have been possible because Henry Howard and Wyatt Jr. did lodge at the Arundel Inn. That's right. And the real Joan Whitnell and the real Alice Flanner 
were actually servants at the inn who knew those two young soldiers. So we know that because Joan and Alice were deposed during the trial of Henry Howard that led to his execution for treason, and we still have those depositions. It's sort of sad that that's why we know who they are. In our story, Joan's husband was a soldier in Thomas Wyatt the Younger's company in Flanders in the 1540s. So Gage and I both think it's fun to let actual coincidences of time and place and people inform the plot. Instead of having a plot that we, like, squish into the time period. Because honestly, the coincidences of the time period and how everyone was intertwined guided the plot for us in such an interesting way. We would just do research and find the next thing that was going to happen because honestly, everybody was so interconnected. We didn't feel like we had to manipulate historical facts. Everything in this story could have happened in terms of who knew who, where they were, were they at the court, would they have known this servant? We kept... Were they at the inn? Were they in Flanders? Yes. And hopefully, knowing that is part of the fun for you guys. Thomas Wyatt the Younger was born in 1521. His mother was Elizabeth Brooke, and he was the eldest child of his parents, by all accounts, pretty unhappy marriage. Thomas Wyatt was brought up a Roman Catholic. Yeah, but that was natural enough at the time. I mean, it wasn't until the 1530s that England broke with Rome, and he was born in 1521, so... And there is a theory that Wyatt the Younger accompanied his father, Sir Thomas Wyatt the Elder, on a diplomatic trip to Spain. And there he saw what was happening with the Inquisition, and he was horrified by it. And that might have been one of his reasons for distrusting the Spanish so much in later life and and trying to raise this rebellion against Mary. It's true. He had even more exposure to the Inquisition and the Spanish when he went abroad to fight. Wyatt the Younger ended up in Flanders because of real events that originated at the Arundel Inn, and it was drunk lads being a-holes. Right. So one night in London in 1543, Wyatt the Younger, Henry Howard, and other, as a contemporary chronicler puts it, boon companions, I guess that means like homies, good boys, you know, were at the Arundel Inn. Bros. Bros. They were partying. (laughs) They were partying. They were having a young person's party. (laughs) I don't know what it says about us that we refer to it as a young person's party. I don't know. Maybe we don't get blindingly drunk anymore. (laughs) They did get blindingly (laughs) drunk. And they went out into the city of London. They menaced the citizens. They vandalized the city. They shot out a bunch of church windows with slingshots. Plenty of the citizens that they menaced, and menaced is is the (laughs) word they use in the contemporary account. That's not our word. But many of the citizens they pissed off were rich and kind of like going on a bender in Beverly Hills. And then is now people get really pissed off when you menace them. The complaints about Wyatt Jr. and Henry Howard went straight up the ladder to the big man, the king himself. And he was furious. So the Earl of Surrey had this great plan to placate the king by writing a poem justifying the events as he being a kind of, you know, religious example for the people. And this, this, you know, breaking the windows and everything was a religious wake-up call to the sinning citizens of London. So I'll read a little bit of that. It says, In the secret silence of the night, this made me with a reckless breast to wake thy sluggards with my bow, a figure of the Lord's behest, 
whose scourge for sin the scriptures show. It's not a bad verse, but it's not going to get you out of going to prison. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the idea that he's saying, I'm waking up these (laughs) laggards, it's just, you know. They weren't buying it. And the king did not buy it. The Earl of Surrey was confined to Fleet Prison, and his friend Wyatt, who was not noble, had to go to what's called the poultry compter. <laughs> it's not where you buy fried chicken. No, it's not because chickens were penned there, but because it was a prison or a compter in Poultry Street. Right, and when Howard was released from prison, he decided that since this poem hadn't worked, he needed to get back into the king's good graces, and he needed to spend some money to do so. So he raised a contingent of soldiers to fight in the name of England against the French in Flanders. In this particular conflict, the English were fighting with the Spanish forces. So the English hated the Spanish, but actually they hated the French more. And in this particular battle, they thought the French were more of adversaries than there, but they fought alongside the the Spanish. And Surrey convinced Thomas Wyatt the Younger to join this company and to go to Flanders also to kind of get back into the king's good graces, because Wyatt had obviously upset him as well. So Surrey paid all these soldiers himself. It was a big layout of money. I don't want it to seem as if Surrey's underwriting a massive force of people. He's not. No, it it wouldn't have been an army or troops so much as a kind of a band of fighters. Band of brothers. A band of brothers. It's it's really important to remember that there was no standing army in, in England until 1645 when Oliver Cromwell formed his new model army. So the monarch, the Tudor monarchs of course, had personal bodyguards who were with them all the time. And in times of war, all able-bodied citizens would be expected to be ready to fight. But there was no full-time professional army that was paid by the government. So these nobles had to raise these small bands of fighters that they would pay so the king wouldn't have to, and this was a way to get into the king's good graces. Whatever the case, it seems that fighting alongside the Spanish drove young Sir Thomas Wyatt to fear the Inquisition even more than he did before. So while Wyatt was away fighting, his friend, the Earl of Surrey, was executed. It's really tragic. It was only nine days later on January 28th that the king died. Henry Howard was the last person executed by Henry VIII. And Wyatt actually didn't return to England until 1550. And when he returns, it's no longer Catholic. It's a firmly Protestant country with Edward VI, a young boy, as king. Wyatt Jr. retired to Arlington Castle with his wife Jane and his five children, basically to run his lands and be a country gentleman. But then in 1553, Edward died, and the whole country was in chaos. Who will rule? Edward was only 14 when he died, poor thing. Four years shy of 18. So 18 was the age that was set by Henry VIII before he died. In 1543, Henry VIII had passed the third act of succession, which put Mary and Elizabeth back in line to the throne if Edward died without an heir, which, of course, he did. Edward and the Lord Protector who ruled in his name, John Dudley, Earl of Warwick, had made other plans. Edward made his own proclamation on the succession before he died. Because Edward and Dudley considered both of Edward's half-sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, unfit. They considered Mary unfit because she was a devout Catholic, 
with close ties to Spain. And they considered Elizabeth unfit because Elizabeth was a little dodgy about her religious position. She was keeping everything in play, as she always did. And what was more problematic, she was the daughter of Anne Boleyn, whose marriage to Henry VIII was still considered by many to be unlawful. If the country went by Henry VIII's will, Mary would be queen. But Edward wanted his solidly Protestant first cousin once removed, Lady Jane Grey, to be queen. The issue with Edward's desire was that he had not reached his majority, 18. He's not ruling on his own. It's as if he's not really king. So many people felt that the succession should be dictated by Henry VIII's will. Because Henry VIII, in effect, was the last real king when Mm -hmm. Edward died. And also, Edward's choice of Lady Jane Grey must have seemed extremely suspicious to a lot of people because she was married to the Lord Protector John Dudley's son, Guilford. So to a lot of people, this looked like a power grab for John Dudley. Since Lady Jane Grey was only 16, John Dudley would have stayed in power as the regent until Lady Jane Grey came of age. She's supported by her father-in-law and by her husband, but also there are many Protestants who support Lady Jane Grey. They don't want England to return to Catholicism. And so she's rushed into London and declared queen. Jane Grey ruled nine days before Mary rode into London from her stronghold in the north. Mary had massive support from the English people and the gates of London were open to her. She had Lady Jane Grey arrested for treason and taken to the tower, but Lady Jane Grey was not committed to death at that point. But so many of our characters are involved in this crisis Lady Clinton was there, Wyatt the Younger was there, the Dudleys, all five of them, including Robert Dudley, William Cecil was there, many people who later served Queen Elizabeth. So we'll keep circling back to this event. Lady Jane Grey, did she really think she should be queen? By all accounts, she really believed in the rightness of being Protestant. Maybe she thought it was God's will for her to rule and save England from the Pope, even though she herself might have been hesitant or certainly afraid. It was a audacious thing to do. And many English people feared Mary's ties to their arch enemy, Spain. And they were right. Almost immediately after taking the throne, Mary decided to marry Philip, who was crown prince and son of her cousin, Charles V. I really understand Mary wanting to marry into the Spanish royal family. Actually, although it was ill-advised from the point of view of being England's queen. But for Mary... Her mother, Catherine, was Spanish royalty. Mary really loved her mother, and she lost her so young. Henry VIII kept them apart, which was just mean, and maybe Mary felt that loyalty to Catherine. Also, Charles V, her cousin, was her only powerful ally during the reign of Edward VI. Charles's political power and military might were the only threats she had to hold over Edward's council, who were always trying to get her to renounce her Catholicism and to stop hearing Mass. And she was genuine in her devotion to Catholicism. Absolutely, as her mother was. Yes. And Thomas Wyatt the Younger reportedly supported Mary's claim to the throne, but he got very nervous when she wanted to marry Philip. And he certainly was not alone. Both commoners and gentry were really against this marriage because Philip was seen both as an agent of the Pope and of this inquisition that so many English people feared. So Wyatt the Younger and other nobles did not want a return to Catholicism for religious reasons, but also there were financial concerns. As there always are. Yes. (laughs) 
Rich landowners feared their property would be returned to the clergy if there was a return to Catholic rule and the monastic system would be brought back. And so they were Protestants because of the land they held. The several nobles conspired to imprison Mary and to persuade her not to marry Philip. But in the end, from a series of mishaps and people you know, changing their minds, not wanting to get involved, only Wyatt the Younger came to the gates of London with his soldiers. And they were a small group of soldiers. And he just assumed Londoners would support him because he had gotten a lot of perhaps false information that they would, and he, they didn't. Mary came out and addressed the people with her famous Guildhall speech. So why don't you read it, Gage? It's, it's pretty good. All right, I'm going to try to make a big voice like they do in period <laughs> dramas, okay? I am your queen, to whom at my coronation when I was wedded in the realm and the laws of the same, the spousal ring whereof I have on my finger, which never hitherto nor hereafter shall be left off, you promised your allegiance and obedience to me. And I say to you, on the word of a prince, I cannot tell how naturally the mother loveth the child, for I was never a mother of any. But certainly, if a prince and a governor may as naturally and earnestly love her subjects as the mother doth love the child, then assure yourselves that I, being your lady and mistress, do as earnestly and tenderly love you and favor you. And I, thus loving you, cannot but think that ye as heartily and faithfully love me, and then I doubt not, but we shall give these rebels a short and speedy overthrow. God save the Queen! God save Queen Mary! Lovely Queen Mary! <laughs> okay, so great job. You've roused the troops, but this speech really says absolutely nothing of any content. Oh, the tutors were so good at this, though. They loved a great speech. So she reassured her people about loving them, but she didn't promise not to marry the Spanish prince, which most of the English did want. But sentiment swayed the crowd, surprise, surprise, and Mary held her throne. But this rebellion made her have to take action. So poor little Jane Grey, she might have been spared. But because of this new threat to Mary's crown and the fact that Jane's father, Henry Grey, was implicated in Wyatt's rebellion, Poor Jane was executed in February of 1554. So Wyatt was taken prisoner for treason, and he was beheaded in April. And to go back to the head-stealing theme of last episode's discussion, Wyatt's head really was stolen off its pike on London Bridge. And who knows? Maybe Joan Whitnell's husband took it. Anyway, Princess Elizabeth was also caught up in Wyatt's uprising because Mary suspected that she had been encouraging the rebellion so she could claim the throne herself. But there's no evidence of that. Elizabeth was put in the tower, but Wyatt maintained that he did not want to depose Mary at all. He just wanted to prevent the marriage to Philip. And if Elizabeth was involved, there's no evidence of that. No, and I think some people saw hope in Elizabeth. She was very popular. It's hard not to suspect that Mary was getting nervous about Elizabeth and you know, was, I don't want to say wanted to implicate her, but was quite happy to see her implicated in this rebellion, perhaps to get rid of her. Wyatt was told by Mary's people that he would live if he would just say that the Princess Elizabeth conspired with him. So that's pretty telling. And they even put him on the rack, and they brought in his wife, Jane, and told her that if she got Wyatt to confess, he would be spared. 
but he didn't break. He he didn't say Elizabeth was part of the the plot. And actually, I believe that because I think um, if that had been the case, he would have said it. At 21, she was already able to talk people out of killing her. And I think she must have... It's a good skill for a tutor. (laughs) It's an excellent (laughs) skill for a tutor. I think she must have been just extremely charismatic because she was really able to enlist people and they were loyal to her for decades. Yeah, it's... I mean, you know, we'll get more to Elizabeth, but she was a pretty... uh, She must have been a pretty incredible intellect, too, just to talk her way out of all these situations. But... So in the end, Mary Tudor did marry Philip, and after all this, it wasn't a great match. He spent very little time in England, he felt unwelcome there by the English, and truthfully, he wasn't very in love with Mary, even the tiniest bit. No, he was not impressed with his new wife. One of his entourage wrote, the queen is not pretty, not at all, is low, Fragile structure instead of fat, with very white hair and blonde, Mm. has no eyebrows, is holy, and she dresses very badly. Ouch. You would have thought the holy would have been a positive thing. And the blonde. And the blonde. It's, it's It's very odd, but... Whatever the case, Philip hightailed it back to Spain. You know, and even they say she has no eyebrows, but actually it was popular not to have any eyebrows. I I don't... It it seems very sad. Mary idealized Spain and the Spanish all her life. She held on to her religion in England in the face of real danger. Yeah. And when her idol, Philip, finally comes to England, he thought she was unattractive and badly dressed. Oh, so painful. Maybe this harsh judgment was really about the fact that Philip looked at Mary and thought to himself, this woman is not healthy, and she's too old to have a child. I mean, remember, Philip is 11 years younger than Mary, and at that time, it it probably looked like she wasn't going to have an heir, and Philip wasn't going to wait around with someone who looks like a poor gamble. Because the monarchy rested in Mary. Philip was not was not going to become king if Mary died. He, it, it would have gone to his heir. So without an heir, his claim in England was, was going to end with Mary. If he thought that she would bear him an heir to the English throne, he would have stayed. What a disappointment that must have been for Mary, that he wouldn't stay. I mean, she worshipped him, and he couldn't get away from her fast enough. I guess he wanted to get back to Madrid and his hotty hot erotic art collection he kept hidden away at the Escorial Palace. That was why <laughs> <laughs> he was having more fun in Spain. But. Probably true. Mary, she had a phantom pregnancy that turned out to be a tumor, and she was dead from cancer by 1558. It was a very short reign. Thomas Wyatt wasn't able to raise a rebellion, but he did arouse a lot of anti-Spanish feeling that possibly was part of the reason Philip wanted to leave England. So maybe he did achieve his goal of saving England from the Inquisition. Yes, but Philip left a Spanish influence at court, and Mary was encouraged to prosecute Protestants, which she did, maybe to make the Spanish and Philip happy or because of her own religious convictions. And she's ended up being remembered as Bloody Mary. So, of course, Elizabeth is released from the Tower. She lays low. It's tempting to think that she knew her time would come, but Mary's failed marriage, Philip's return to Spain, and their lack of children, 
these things were all unforeseeable. When Mary was dying, Philip did not come and see her to say goodbye. You could see, I think he was a real asshole. He just wrote her a letter from Spain advising her to name Elizabeth as her successor, which of course she did, despite wanting a Catholic on the throne. Do you think that Mary knew that Philip would want to marry Elizabeth? Oh, I hope not, but I'm sure she suspected it. Elizabeth was 17 years younger, she was only 21, prime childbearing years, and Mary wasn't really sure, honestly, if, if Elizabeth was Catholic or Protestant, because Elizabeth never really revealed that. So when he did make an offer of marriage to, to Elizabeth, he was willing to make big concessions to get her to marry him. He was willing to let her practice religion in the way she chose to. But Elizabeth didn't, didn't go for it. She survived this chaos. Nobody else did. <laughs> no one else survived, but she survived. So after this encounter with Joan, Philomena and Constance are going to go back to the Arundelin to look for some more clues. And that's where we'll pick it up in the next episode. So as always, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, and please do, you can go to YouTube, Patreon, or Podbean to sign up. And we would love to have you as a subscriber. Right. And like us on Tudor Time Machine Facebook page. We post all kind of fun articles. So see you next week, and remember to listen for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk.